about with <laughs> Ovid with an O. My name's Pete Peterson. I'm your host. We're and with me as always is. My name is Whitney Seibold. Don't tell anybody, but we're hidden in the basement of the library right now. And the mummy is the floor is on the floor above us. We hope it doesn't find us. But we've, we've got the rest of the magnificent Ambersons, but we're not allowed to tell anyone. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised you haven't started with uh, with a Crypt Keeper impersonation yet. I that I I I think I said this on one of the cu- first couple episodes. Is that I I I still haven't seen any of the tales from the crypt. Oh um, well, just to, so but, it's just I've I've the only crypt keeper I've ever heard is like Bibbs's impersonation of the crypt keeper. Oh, and and like, and I've said this to to uh, his face before. Uh, William, my co-host over on uh, on. Uh, my other uh, network, he he likes to imitate the Crypt Keeper, and uh, he he doesn't do it quite accurately. I have cr- oh, criticized, but it's fun to listen to, especially when he talks Keeper. about ghastly Tober. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he likes to sort of shriek a lot. The, the Crypt Keeper is uh, it's a much more raspy voice. Um, but uh, yes, welcome. But we're not here to talk about tales from the crypt. Uh, we can talk about yeah. how HBO has promised they're going to put all of the HBO shows on their streaming service, and how Tales from the Crypt mm. isn't on it. It's another one of those. Nor is David Lynch's Hotel Room, or or uh, uh. Dream On, or any of the shows that you know I grew up watching. But uh, I learned recently that the whole Tales from the Crypt is a big uh, rights issue between like the original. Got it. Uh, it's it, Warner Brothers doesn't own the show; like they own the title, but I think Fox might own the rights to the show itself. It's one of those, like, Batman the series, where two different studios are mm-hmm. sort of fighting over who gets to own this show, and we don't know if the, that'll ever be resolved. So that's why Tales from the Crypt, yeah. one of the best shows ever made, is not on uh, any streaming service. But you can buy DVDs. Those They're not in print, okay. but you can get them on the secondhand market, and they're around. Um, yeah, um, and yeah, in case you didn't hear the, the opening, because... I'm, I don't know if I'm going to have to do something in post to even make that audible. I don't know. Um, this is, we're talking about uh, Ovid.tv. This is the streaming service um, dedicated to independent art house, um, avant-garde, what have you, cinema. The mm-hmm. stuff that plays in museums, the stuff that doesn't play anywhere else. Um, and yeah, this week, this week we're talking about a lot of long stuff. Um, <laughs> Hooray for long movies. Uh Ovid is a treasure trove of films that are upwards of four and a half hours in length and longer. Uh, and mm-hmm. as, as you and I have both said, uh, that's like catnip for us. It's like if, yeah. if, if you got a 78 minute movie, I'm there. And if it's anywhere between 90 minutes and five hours, I'm a little less interested. And once you get a, like over <laughs> four and a half, over five hours, like, Oh, now I'm interested again. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And yeah, and I would say that about half of the films that I've seen that are over four hours have been on Ovid. <laughs> um, I have a little, I've got a letterboxed account, and I have this uh, one specific list dedicated to the films that exceed 240 minutes in length. Mm-hmm. Um, two of my favorite films, um, A Brighter Summer Day and An Elephant Sitting Still, are both just under that mark, so they can't get in the list. Oh. But anyway, so stuff like Hamlet, Frederick Wiseman's City Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, I count Ava DuVernay's uh, four-episode miniseries, When They See Us, as one movie, because that's really how it functions. Okay. But anyway, and... Uh, yeah, and and I'm going to be talking about one of those very long films today. But uh, just before we get 
before we get to there, I just wanted to show you this. I posted a picture of it on Twitter, but oh. I, I, this is my friend. Oh, I built it's the ice man. Yeah, oh I, I built a little Lego um, Gojira, um, and he's precious and beautiful. Uh, the tail's a little too short, but I am technically building this for a board game. And it has to, you know, fit on the board. So, oh, right. uh, so the tail's a little short, but I had this took a few weeks of like planning out and designing because there's never been an official Lego set for Godzilla. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, Warner Brothers has never licensed um, the character, or Toho's never licensed the character to Lego. They do a lot of licensed stuff, but they've never done mm-hmm. it for the Godzilla franchise. And so you when you look up like Lego Godzillas, you only ever see like fan made stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, unofficial sets and I've noticed and I noticed when when building them that they always looked a little off and I realized what it was is that they're smooth because Lego bricks are smooth on the side right. and Godzilla is not smooth God. he's got this you know this very distinct texture on his his skin they're not scales they're they're meant to evoke you know radiation burns mm. um and so I had to figure out a way to basically make uh, the Lego, like the bumps, um, protrude on all sides of the, of, the, of the figure. So not just on the top, but on the sides and on the bottom. And it became a very interesting challenge. And anyway, so I'm just proud of that. Um, so uh-huh, I'm, <laughs> it, was, it felt like I was legitimately like designing a Lego set. And mm-hmm. it was like... Anyway, it's really cool. It, 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 um, it, you but, did an excellent job, Le- Lego Godzilla. Um, uh, is yeah, uh, yeah I was just uh, taking a, a quick pass through uh, like what sort of Toho products there are, and there aren't a lot uh, available in the United States. You can get plenty from Japan, uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's not, and there's plenty of of course Godzilla merch out in the world, but just not not Lego. Curiously yeah. enough. Um, yeah, so just build your own. Anyway, um, so uh, speaking of Japan, um, I saw a film that you saw last week, and mm-hmm. boy, howdy, am I glad I did. You know, I'm glad I did, and but at the same time, I've got some thoughts. Okay. Um, Ryusuke Hamaguchi's Happy Hour. Oh, yes. Five hours, 17 minutes. It's a melodrama, and but... The drama is downplayed to where a lot of it just feels like a mellow. Um, <laughs> it stars uh, f- four women as uh, a- adults, like r- late thirties. Um, at the in the opening scene, we get one age that we're somewhere around thirty-seven is essentially where all these women are at in their lives. Um, we get the impression that they're friends, but kind of newly, uh, uh, they've all kind of met recently and they're trying to plan out when are we going to hang out as friends. Mm-hmm. Um, later we learn that all of them are connected to one of the people and she is like introducing all of them to each other so that they can become a unit. Um, we have June played by Rita Kamaura, uh, or Kawamura and she is, um, we we learn this is the the inciting incident that, as you said, occurs about an hour, 15 minutes into the movie. Um, we learn that she is divorcing her husband and she's been in the process for over a year and it's been ugly. Um, she is friends with uh, Sakurako, uh, played by uh, Hazuki Kuchi, who she's known for 25 years. Um, and uh, Saku... Saku uh, Sakuraku is married, um, has a teenage son, and 
recently uh, her mother-in-law has come to live with uh, them and there's a lot of stuff that happens with that family unit. Um, there's Fumi, uh, played by Maiko Mihara, uh, who is married to an editor and she helps run this kind of... Uh, kind of like an art center essentially where she invites uh, people to have workshops do readings essentially and there's a blending of personal life and work life that happens with her husband that eventually gets complicated um, and then we have Akari played by uh, Sachie Tanaka uh, who is a nurse practitioner and is single divorced and is a bit more of the brash type um <laughs> is the one who used to party the one who's unafraid to speak her mind and it's five hours of these women interacting and <sighs> here's the thing whitney what melodrama really isn't my genre it's mm. not something I gra- gravitate towards. However, when a melodrama hits, it hits. Mm. Um, I think the two best examples of this, um, two of my favorite films are Pedro Almodovar's All About My Mother. <laughs> okay. Um, it's no question one of the best movies, period. Um, and Dorothy Arzner's Merrily We Go to Hell. Okay. Okay. Uh, which is a two-hander. That's Sylvia Sidney and Friedrich March, and that film will rip you apart like very few other films will. Um, be prepared to to have everything torn asunder within you. <laughs> um, and like Merrily We Go to Hell, um, and like Dorothy Arzner's filmography, Happy Hour is one of the most pessimistic views of marriage that I've ever seen. <laughs> well, uh, you're you're working your way through Bergman, so you're going to get some more, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 slowly working my way through Bergman. Mm. Uh I just watched uh To Joy, which is a film about uh marriage mm. over the course of 7 years and that that film uh that To Joy is a, centers around musicians mm. and and conductors and I love like all, that they center music but at the same time the actors can't play the the, the violins that they're pretending <laughs> to play and it annoys me so much and uh, the guy who I forget his name who was the star in Wild Strawberries plays the conductor mm. um, Bergman's mentor and he is I'm sorry he has no clue how to be a conductor and like he starts yelling about what instruments are getting wrong he's like okay winds go and then the brass start playing and I'm like what are you doing and anyway <laughs> so there's little music things that annoy me in that movie but anyway back to back to marriage yeah uh this movie kind of shows that marriage is horrible <laughs> and life sucking. It, it's it's certainly fraught. Um, mar- yeah. Marriage is not the salvation uh, of the world, and it, it, it's yeah. nobody's salvation in this in the world of happy hour. And it, it's kind of saying that all human relationships are sort of fraught, but friendship is the thing that's going to get you to the true ultimate destination. Which is utter independence, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's telling something I didn't mention uh, last week. There's a, a scene halfway through this movie where um I th- it's Jun uh, who I uh, who's going through the divorce, right? Yes, uh, Jun. Uh, essentially, it's it's like an 
It's like in uh, Antonioni's La Ventura. She gets on a boat and she just disappears and she's gone for the rest of the movie. And right. I, I got the impression that she was sort of, she had found peace. She had t- used her friends mm-hmm. as sort of like a stepping stone out of her marriage and into a place where she can finally be alone. And that was the ultimate triumph of her character was that she didn't have any people anymore. Yeah. Um, I kind of hated it though. Um, oh, you, <laughs> I mean, you didn't like that she disappeared. No, just in a, in a, in a. Because here's the thing with those two melodramas that I just mentioned, uh-huh. uh, "Merrily We Go to Hell" and "All About My Other," "All About My Mother." Those films are big melodramas, and they have a catharsis at the end. Mm. This movie is a melodrama with no catharsis at the end, and you're just kind of waiting for big resolutions to happen, and then they don't happen, and you're like, "Why did this movie is five hours and seventeen minutes, and it's way too short?" Because we need to get to a resolution of some kind. <laughs> it's. I I was the first like three hours of this movie I was riveted and then the last two hours of this movie I was thrown so off guard by the turns that it takes and how oddly specific it decides to get it focuses in on a Q&A session which is maybe one of the worst Q&A sessions that I've ever seen because the guy <laughs> goes up to replace him last replace the Q&A mm-hmm. uh, uh, interviewer um, last minute just talks about himself for like 10 minutes straight mm-hmm. asks the author only yes or no questions right and I'm like what this is horrible this is an abysmal interview and then we keep going with that character and the author and it's just like we just completely like it seems like we're just going way off track from what the rest of this movie was doing and it just kind of sits mm-hmm. there and then the movie just kind of resolves, or, or not resolves, ends, and I'm like, wait, what? Because here's the thing, you you, you said it, June leaves halfway through the movie. Yeah. Um, she's gone, she's out of it. I was waiting for her to come back to have some sort of <laughs> catharsis with that character, but no, she's just gone. Uh-huh. This movie frustrated me so much. I think it's amazing. Don't get me wrong, but I was so irritated when the credits rolled. I was like, "Come on." Well, and and but that's the thing. Uh, I think this was about these people finding their own identities and not finding the catharsis in the friendship that you you think that the thesis is going to be at the beginning. It's about how are we going to get right. together, or even are in the narrative more... structure, it just um, kind of abandons it. Uh, as for that q and A, I I I was exhilarated at how bad, bad a Q&A it was. Uh, mm. Because I think if, if you go to film Q&As, like I've been to a couple, and right. there's always going to be some bad curator, some bad interviewer, uh, that really embarrassing moment when somebody stands up and just asks like a, a 12-part question that only has a yes or no answer. Uh, the people mm-hmm. who are like accusatory of the filmmakers, like, isn't it true that you ripped this side? It's like, no, shut up. You're representing the audience yeah. now. Sit down. And and how that goes mm-hmm. into the dinner scene that follows the Q and A mm-hmm. when is like you said it. You at one point said but, and then you said that no, I'll stop talking. What were you going to say? And this man who is actually the ex of June, like June's ex, mm-hmm. who you know, you hate, and then he shows up and he just forces his way into an a- the last hour of this movie. Um, and mm. and then he talks about how he, much he thinks, like, this young author just doesn't get it. <laughs> and you're just like, what? 
leave the movie. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Everything, because here's the thing: is it was set up. We have we essentially get this reading of this book that this author gives. I know I'm jumping around. Mm. I'm a, Whitney kind of gave the briefing on this movie last week, and so I'm just kind of going into the specifics. Um, the author gives this reading, and it's like a half an hour, and we. I was super excited because the thing that happens a lot in movies is that there's going to be some artist with some piece of art. And then because the filmmakers would have had to create the art for the movie, they just, you know, don't. Um, We see a painting, but we see people looking at a canvas, but we never see the painting. We only hear people talk about the the painting. Uh We actually get to hear the woman reading her work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this is like good. And I'm like, engaged. The final passage talking about bodies melding together in the bathhouse was like really touching. And then we get, so we're actually going to get a Q&A now. And we're actually, oh no, it's this terrible Q&A. But then we got, when we actually got to the question and answer period, like from the audience, I really love that part because as soon as the dude stopped talking (laughs) and it's the author talking, like she actually gives like really great answers. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Same with like the workshop at the beginning. I loved everything with that. Like that was like, you were actually at the workshop and and like, I was watching a lot of this with my sister, Uh um, my 50 year old sister. And she was like, at one point she's like, I kind of want to touch foreheads with someone and try to send them a word and like all the little things. And so there's so many moments in here that I love and so many moments that I hate and like, you know, but the movie wants me to hate. And so this movie works really, really well. And at the same time, it doesn't give you the catharsis that you want. And it's just like, wow, uh, it's a lot. I'm, I'm not being very coherent or, or, or cogent or I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of blathering on. But like, <laughs> this movie got to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, good. That's kind of its point. Um, yeah, it, it's it's not a comforting film, is it? It's uh, it, No. It, it is about sort of discomfort and awkwardness, and I think... But it is also about comfort and the little things we have. It, it Five hours and 17 minutes, it has all of that in it, and it allows the, uh, the melodrama to grow in such a way that it becomes less melodramatic, I feel. It's less uh, false. It's actually a lot more realistic, and we get to see how long and awkward these conversations actually are and it Mm -hmm. starts from a melodramatic standpoint but tips deep into realism by the end this sort of like uh, kitchen sink real time conversations that we're seeing with these people right there could be a 90 minute version of this movie that was just you know chock full of incident and Mm. dramatic turns and confessions of love and breakups and all this stuff and car crashes and 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 it would be you know a lot but then you stretch it over five hours and you're like i want more now (laughs) because you've given me so much Mm. and the film doesn't really have this big cathartic ending because life doesn't really have this big cathartic ending. It just kind of keeps going. Yeah, well, and th- this is something um, I've, I've talked about when uh, there aren't a lot of really grand movies about marriage. If you see a movie about mm-hmm. marriage, it's either about people getting married for the first time or it's about people getting a divorce. It's about the beginning or the end of the marriage. Right. There are, are very few movies about being married because there's nothing inherently dramatic about being married it's it's a constant process mm-hmm. and uh, there isn't going to be a climax to that there isn't going to be a turning point uh it, it was um 
uh, of all people, it was Ira Glass of This American Life who said that the only w- the one thing you need to tell a story is a change. There needs to be some kind of change throughout. Like, <clears throat> this, I-, I believe this is not a story. I used to believe this is because it implies that something changed along the way. Uh, and right. so uh, when you're telling stories about marriage, what's the change going to be? Well, usually the change is the marriage ends or something changes in the marriage or the relationship has to change, which affects the marriage itself. And as such, a lot of uh, writers don't like to go to marriage as a source of drama because it's just sort of this ongoing thing. Uh, I think uh, the movie uh, This Is 40 is a good example of this, uh, where that's just a movie about these two people trying to make their marriage work, and there's not really a climax to that movie. Also, they're insufferably bourgeois in that film. Uh, Okay. And I feel like that's what uh, Hamaguchi is getting at in Happy Hour, in that uh, we're trying to tell a story through little moments in life, and that's all we're going to get is those little moments and how life is actually constructed of all of these things together and how that in unto itself is a story, uh, even though there's not going to be some kind of grand resolution. The grand resolution is a character just leaves. That's all that happens. But that only happens, and that happens half an hour, halfway through the film. Yeah, yeah, and then there's an, another so two it, and a half hours to go. Yeah, and you're just, yeah, you watch the relationships of these three women now, mm-hmm change and develop over time and yeah going back to going back to marriage there's we see the end of a marriage we see the end possibly of multiple marriages um in this film we also see a marriage um with um with what i really liked about the character of of sakurako and her husband who literally wears the exact same tie in every scene he's in (laughs) um same ugly striped tie um, shows you about how the kind of marriages that just continue and they get more difficult, but they continue because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And so it gives you, you know, the moments of change. This is spread out over five hours, so it feels like it's actually earned that you've spent so long with one state of being, then you can move on to another one. It's like, okay whoa this is big Mm. um this is meaningful um and then you also get the ones that just keep going and you're like all right this is also meaningful and yeah uh there is a monologue in this film in the essentially uh in the in the scene where after the workshop and they're all at this dinner together Mm-hmm. There is a scene that just one of the minor characters who shows up twice in the movie and is a very key figure. He gives this one monologue about a divorce that he went through. Mm-hmm. And I just was thinking while listening to this monologue about the stuff we realize with infidelity, with um, with this guy's uh, wife and talking about their relationship and all this stuff. And it's just this, you know, five minute monologue. And I'm just like, man, I didn't have to watch Marriage Story. I could have just listened to this monologue and I get just as much out of it. That these that these traditional melodramas just, you know, I don't need them. <laughs> I have this. I have people talking. It's like, who needs, 
like this is obviously overly simplistic, but who needs a sex scene when you have the monologue from Persona? There, it's all there. Just talking. <laughs> well, who who needs a sex scene? Um, me. Uh, <laughs> sorry, yeah, not, no, I know, not, not, I know. Not, not to just, be prurient or anything, but you know, I I think I think both have their function. No, I know, but it's just like it's just this film accomplishes so much with its runtime and so much with just people speaking mm. in a way that so many films try to have this big showy demonstration. And in the films that I mentioned, all about my mother, Marilyn, we go to hell. Mm. They work and they're great. And so many films, you could just do it with with a sentence. Yeah, and you can yeah, yeah. do it with an hour. Uh, I so. I uh, I was reminded uh, when we were talking about Thursday till Sunday, uh, the uh, uh, Domingo Sotomayor film, uh, also on Ovid. Uh, I, I brought up the fact that uh, sometimes when I'm watching a movie, I'm watching sort of the intro. I'm sort of sinking into the world of the film. I'm getting to know the characters, and then I get a little upset when the story begins. It's like, oh, this is what this right. movie's going to be about, and now we have like sort of a direction to take it. I was sort of enjoying myself just living in the world with these characters. Happy Hour has that moment where we realize what this film is going to be about. It's not until about 90 minutes into the film. Uh, so we have like 90 minutes of just living with these people. And you get that sort of same vaguely disappointed, not like disappointed in the movie, but disappointed in yourself for liking the movie and having to uh, having to force yourself to get involved in a story. But because the film is so long, we understand what this is about, and we can actually sort of lose that thread after a while and realize that right. this is about uh, this divorce, but it's actually not directly about the divorce. And we actually kind of sink back into the world again and kind of are just mm -hmm. lost in the conversations that these people are having. And each conversation kind of like develops the drama without pushing a story forward uh, and yeah, we just sort of get to live back in the world again, and then we get another moment of disappointment when there's a dramatic thing again, and then we get to sort of sink yeah, back like, in. Oh, again. a new subplot. Yeah, it's like, oh, oh, but this isn't really a subplot. This is just the drama of life and how things come up and fall away. And the the exactly. the extremely long length of this movie lets that happen a couple times throughout. Uh, if, if this were a two-hour film, there wouldn't be the time to sink back into the world again. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, no, it really does feel like every hour of this movie is just a new movie. Mm. Um, and and I love that about it. It's, it's, it's like a novel. Um, yeah, mm. uh, one last thing I wanted to say about it is this film is shot... If you told me that it was all natural lighting, I just believe you. Oh. Um, the way that this... This this film refuses to properly light its characters is kind of exhilarating. Um, like in the workshop scene, um, the lights aren't on in the room, and all the windows are essentially whited out because of how bright it is outside. And so you're a lot of this, you know, this half hour sequence, forty five minute sequence of this workshop, all the characters are kind of bathed in darkness, and you can't really see them. But mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of how it. That's how it looks like in those rooms. <laughs> yeah. Like, you've been in those rooms. You know when it's kind of dark and you kind of have to make out people's faces. This film isn't going to artificially light anything. Everything's just going to be dark and a little bit obscure when, every, when it's night or when you're in shadow. And it'll be bright and overexposed when they're out in the sun. And I just, I, I thought that that was just... 
it was just a really I, I haven't seen many films that were that that where that works mm. where it doesn't just feel cheap or that they were in a rush and they didn't have time to properly light stuff it just yeah, yeah. It, it again goes back to this is we're just kind of watching life this is a dude with a camera in a corner uh filming this um and so yeah just so many little things there's a there's a character that we only get you know maybe 10 minutes with um who we see uh once at a waterfall and then again on a bus it's one of my favorite that's maybe my favorite character in the movie (laughs) um the queer moment that you talked about um Mm -hmm. it's just a moment and -hmm. it's really awkward and you really want more and then you don't get more and you're just like (laughs) but yet at the same time you're so glad you had um... it and it completes this character in a sort of way and it just mm-hmm. yeah everything gets really weird and yeah that that whole last the last 90 minutes of this movie is just one of the more irritating <laughs> and infectious confusing experiences i've had and i welcomed it yeah i was and, about to say you're you're yeah. glad you had it though right yeah no this this is a this is a great film and mm. but and it's it's a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> my my reaction when it ended was like, I'm not sure how you expect me to respond to this, um, and how with 30 minutes of rambling. So there you go. <laughs> happy hour. Happy hour. Um, uh, well, I have a very unhappy uh, topic to move on to. Um, oh, it's not Nazis. Is it? Uh, it, it it just may be Nazis. Uh, yeah, uh, I uh, and we talked about how. Uh, these are films that are very sort of off to the side on Ovid, things that are very, uh, like only playing museums. This one actually won an Academy Award uh, back in 1988 right. for Best Documentary Film. This was uh, Marcel Ophel's uh, uh, Hotel Terminus, a, uh, colon, The Life and Times of Klaus Barbie. Uh, Hotel Terminus, uh, again, it's a nice long one. It's four and a half hours in length. Uh, Ovid has split it into... Right. And it chronicles the creation mm. of the classic uh, Barbie doll mm. and its Aryan roots. No. <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of... I was watching this and I was only thinking of uh, a scene from the movie Rat Race where uh, John Love in that movie, John Lovitz plays a family man who's secretly trying to race to, uh, like, across state lines to get uh, $2 million in cash. And his family doesn't know that he's in a race. And so they're constantly asking to stop and take breaks. And he's like, no, no, we can't stop. We can't stop. And they see a a sign for the Barbie Museum. It's like, oh, great. Let's stop and check out the Barbie Museum. And he's like, okay, fine. We'll stop for 10 minutes just so I can shut up my family. And it turns out to be the Klaus Barbie Museum. (laughs) And when they realize where they are, they flee out the back of the building and they're being chased by Nazis because they said something untoward and they have to jump into a car and flee. And of course they flee into... Uh, like Hitler's touring car, and that goes on for the rest of that movie. Um, oh boy, Rat Race is pretty fun. Uh, okay, Hotel Terminus is not. Uh, Klaus Barbie um, is. Oh, his nickname was what is like the. Um, it's like the the like the butcher of, of he he had some like really horror the butcher of Lyon the, or Leon? the butcher of Leon yeah the uh, he was uh, a exceptionally good 
at torturing and murdering great numbers of people. He was uh, high up in the, the Nazi regime during World War II, uh, was well aware of all of the death camps, helped organize a lot of that stuff. Um, he was in the Gestapo. and uh, But this uh, film isn't about what he did during the war. Uh, in fact, I think Marcel Ophuls feels that uh, depicting that sort of thing is a little bit vulgar. Uh, there have been a lot of films about World War II that really kind of focus on the pain and the death and the torture, and a lot of people have found that to be incredibly distasteful. It's like, we know what happened, we don't have to, to see it over and over and over again. Some people feel like you need to see the atrocities to, you need to be shocked by this, because this really happened, this is real history. People made conceited efforts to do this stuff see it, understand how shocking right. it is, and never do it again. Um, Marcel Ophuls has no interest in, in that. He doesn't want to shock you. Uh, he wants to shock you in a different sort of way, because after World War II, this, this film is very much, it's mostly interviews with uh, the people who were tracing Klaus Barbie's essentially career after World War II, because he was not killed. He was not apprehended. In fact, he fled the country... And was hiding out with the aid of the CIA. The American government actually helped Klaus Barbie flee and protected him. And they were using his, in their, ter in their words, like military know-how, that is to say, willingness to torture and kill people, uh, to uh, fight communism in Bolivia. So he was actually being used as a tool by the U.S. government. And... Marcel Ophuls tracks down those CIA guys. He tracks down the people who knew him in Bolivia. He goes all around the world and talks to everybody. He goes and uh, eventually uh, in like 1984 about. So this is like 40 years after the war. Uh, they finally track down Klaus Barbie as an old man and finally then put him on trial for crimes against humanity after he had already outlasted his sort of usefulness to the government. And even then... A lot of people say, why are you doing this? It was so long ago. There's all of these conversations about Klaus Barbie, and they talk about how he was an okay neighbor. He was, uh, they, use, they use the term, he was a great guy, over and over again in this film. He, he was fine. He did okay. He was kind to me. He was okay to my dog, and you couldn't fool my dog. It's like, you, you can't fool a dog? <laughs> So it it is about when when you're watching this you're I mean you're furious with Klaus Barbie because he's a monster and he's a murderer and he's a torturer and clearly he's doing these things because he has a propensity to violence. But what uh what Marcel Ophuls is trying to point out is that the monsters don't exist in a vacuum. They don't just sort of spring up and get to do evil and then are vanquished. They are built by a system that allows them to happen, and then eventually, after they've committed their atrocities, are abetted. And, you know, you look at a lot of the monsters of history, a lot of the dictators, they die elderly people. They're rarely brought to justice. They're not strung... I mean, unless you're... Uh, uh, Unless you're Mussolini, you're not going to be strung up in a you know the town square. Unless you're Adolf Hitler, you're not going to uh, die by your own hand in a bunker. You know a lot of you know Pol Pot died in the, his seventies, and a lot of people who start wars here in the United States aren't facing any kind of justice. You know how how old was Rumsfeld? 
uh, and you know all of these uh, all these war violent violence mongering like war criminals are just part of the system to a lot of people and we are kind of powerless to put responsibility onto them uh what marcel ophuls is trying to do is very much what oppenheimer was trying to do in uh the look of silence and the act of killing his documentaries about the uh indonesian genocide and that he's trying to track down the people who are responsible for immoral things evil things right. not just the the murderers but the people who helped them along and he's trying to put them on the spot he's getting them on camera and he's saying do you think that was a bad thing and some of them kind of hem and haw and look away you know they they can't say out loud yes i did a bad thing they just said no it was just sort of what was going on at the time and uh he was kind of useful to us at the time and after a while it didn't matter you know enough time had passed he was a different kind of person then and nobody's willing to take responsibility. They're always saying, you know, we got to pass the buck or somebody else was giving him orders and we have to blame them, but they're dead now. It's, and I'm seeing a lot of that kind of uh, obfuscation, that kind of uh, language where people are trying to slip out of uh, taking responsibility in every level of modern politics. <laughs> Uh, and not not even just with the politicians I hate, also the politicians I like. They're they're never willing to say mm -hmm. that was me. Here's what we're going to take decisive action because we did something that was morally wrong. Uh, there's always this right. notion. Oh no, we're all always in the morally gray. We're never going to take care of anything. We're never really responsible. And then of course here in the United States, uh, just a a year and a half ago, we had a, a president who into a microphone said out loud, "I don't take responsibility at all." And, you know, you, you look at Donald Trump, and yes, of course, I'm comp uh, comparing Donald Trump to Klaus Barbie. Uh, <laughs> uh, just sort of in, in that slippery language that, uh, that he tends to use. Uh, he always says, people have said, I don't take responsibility. If something bad happened, it was somebody else's idea. Or if somebody, something good happened, I take credit. If something bad happened, I diffuse. And uh, that's what's going on throughout history. And this is going, was happening in the late 80s with these Nazi generals who were still alive. And Klaus Barbie was put on trial and was in was serving a life sentence when this movie came out in 1988. Uh, he didn't die until in prison until 1991. So he spent the young part of his life committing these horrendous atrocities, and then most of his life committing other atrocities and never paying for any anything never uh, facing any kind of responsibility. And all of the people who let it happen also never faced any kind of responsibility. And Marcel Ophuls is fucking outraged. He is trying to get some accountability into this. And he's spending you know, four and a half hours of film trying to push the narrative in that direction and only getting stonewalled. And how frustrating and angering this movie is, is a big part of the point that you you even when you're on camera and you're asked directly you're still going to kind of try to slip out of it um marcel ophuls also made a film called the sorrow and the pity which was about the vichy the french vichy government i know uh, that one from annie hall oh uh, yeah <laughs> and uh, that that's also a very long one uh, i think those are the only feature films that marcel ophuls has uh has directed um, 
I know he's he's the son of Max Ophuls, so he was actually raised in sort of a filmmaking legacy. I'm not sure if you know Max Ophuls, but um, he did uh, Lola Montez and The Earrings of Madame de, and a, a few other notable French classics. But yeah, Marcel... Oh, excuse me. Uh, Marcel Ophuls has done... Um, he did The Sorrow and the Pity. He's, he's done uh, other many other films besides. Uh, so apo- apologies okay. there. Uh but, so do you like it? Well, I, I think it's. I, well, I mean, like it, you know, enjoy it. Did it make me happy? I, I know that's not, such but, a reductive yeah, question. Did you like? Well, it's. I think it's valuable and it's challenging and it made me angry. So yeah, if, if I liked it in that it challenged me, uh, I like it in that I, I think it's bringing up an incredibly important point about uh, how uh, easy it is to uh, ignore evil in the real world. Uh, and how uh, we tend not to confront evil when it's on a large scale. You know, you, you go on social media, you find people w- willing to be confrontational about their movie opinions and get really angry about it and even start making death threats. But when faced with something that is unambiguously evil out in the real world, all of a sudden you're in a gray area, that doesn't make a lot of sense oh. to me. And I think uh, Marcel Ophuls is trying to really, really push the unpleasant truth about the world and about uh, about World War II and about the way real-life monsters uh, become so huge at some point Persist. that they can't be touched. It's like... Um, it, um, how does he do this formally? Like, is it just interviews? Um, does he do recreations? Like, uh, is there anything... Is there anything, like, you know, that we wouldn't see in most documentaries? No, no, no. There's, there's not a lot of, like... Uh, creative filmmaking as it were uh, it's all interview it's all okay. interviews and okay. uh, marcel ophuls uh, appears on camera and you hear his voice he's actually an active part of all okay. of this but he asks uh not just people who knew klaus barbie but people who had survived the war and what was going on and the kinds of things like mm-hmm. uh klaus barbie was like doing in terms of torture uh, we talked we have an interview with a woman who got to watch Klaus Barbie torture her father to death, for instance. So we, we're getting a lot of these really harrowing stories of what this man did. And, uh, yeah, we don't, and we don't care what he has to say. We just care about sort of this, the system in which he is living. And I think, uh, that's sort of the creativity that Marcelo Ophuls is bringing. He's bringing that perspective to it. Uh, he's, he's not letting the monsters, have the voice he is saying that the system is letting the monsters exist it doesn't matter what they have to say all right well um a lot of times on this show we end up catching up to what the other has seen and we haven't Mm -hmm. um i don't feel that's going to be the case here i'm probably gonna (laughs) i'm probably gonna say you know what i'm good (laughs) yeah it's it's a rough one and uh it's a joke about uh films in the united states about how there are far too many World War II pictures. And uh, there was even a joke on the TV show Extras about how if, if you want an Oscar, star in a World War II film. Play a Nazi and you'll get an Oscar. And for a long time, right. at, at least when I was a youth, I remember seeing all kinds of World War II pictures, you know, from Schindler's List and all of the ephemera there around. And... Uh, right. Um, there's a... There's a... I'll just... I'll, I just want to shout this out because I've never had the opportunity to. There's a video on YouTube that you can find. It's from a channel called uh, Film Theory or The Film Theorists. 
Um, but where this guy's name is Matt Patty basically does a lot of oh, he started out with video games like overanalyzing the lore of video games to try mm-hmm. and you know create crazy theories but um, he did an analysis of the Oscars once and he's like here is the most surefire way for Leonardo DiCaprio to finally to get his Oscar he needs to play this particular guy um, who and it's like and he analyzes like all of the factors like so it definitely needs to be a World War Two movie and it definitely needs to be about Nazi Germany mm-hmm. and so what needs to happen is someone needs to play this certain Jewish guy, this real, and needs to be based on a true story. This certain Jewish guy who is like um, a musician or something. A violinist. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he was, a, he was a violinist and he was uh, taken in by the Nazi. Da, da, da. And it's like mm-hmm. this whole thing, like outlining this true story and like how this is scientifically the statistically the most likely role to win an Oscar ever mm-hmm. anyway. And so it just like, it's yeah, Academy of the Awards. Uh, they they do like a World War Two uh, mm. Nazi Germany thing, well, don't they? Um, and, uh, and so yeah, it's it's become this cliche. Uh, it's like oh, you roll your eyes. It's another Nazi film, uh, and yet and yet, we still have it. We still have Nazis. Yeah. We still have yeah. anti-Semitism. We still have right. the. We're getting to the point where the new, where now the movie's getting nominated for Best Picture about the new Nazis, yeah, yeah, like Black Klansmen. So, um, let's let's um, maybe err on the side of caution and err on the side of continuing to see these atrocities and remind people that this was real because it's fading into history more and more with every passing day, and we need to remind people right. that this is something that happened and it wasn't so long ago. Klaus Barbie died in prison right. while I was in junior high school i was alive mm-hmm. uh and you know we're, we're still uh just this year there was a film called final account which was about the the kid they're now elderly right. but the people who are in uh the in uh, hitler's nazi youth programs and how a lot of their attitudes right. about how grand hitler was persist around the world mm-hmm. and these are attitudes that we need to excise because they are grand aberrations from the human spirit and i think uh right having more and more movies about world war ii is still going to be pretty vital and i think uh watching something like hotel terminus is a really great way to remind us that the system is in place to actually protect this kind of evil and we need to address much larger issues before we can finally be rid of the legacy of world war ii yeah fun stuff (laughs) So I, I, I understand this is, you know, kind of an intense downer note to go out on, we can't say. And this was so yeah. reaffirming and edifying, because this is actually kind of a, a very pessimistic yeah. film. But, you know, it, it, the pessimism serves a function. It's not just like Genus Pan, where we, we're looking at the movie and saying, oh, humanity is shit, bye. Uh, it's... <laughs> yeah, that that really was what that movie was. It was just yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, um... Yeah, uh, go watch, if you haven't already, why haven't you? Go watch Patricio Guzman's Nostalgia Trilogy. It's about a lot of the same things. Yeah, but, but they're um, but they're beautiful and edifying, and they're, you know, these grand works of art. They're not just yeah. uh, cynical and pessimistic and dark. There's actually a lot, of, right. a lot of beauty and ambiguity and ambivalence going on in those movies. Well, speaking of uh, ambivalence, beauty, and dark... Um, I saw one more film. I just saw it this morning okay. because I had some time. <laughs> All right. Um, the f- um, 
I saw a little short film. Mm. Um, and it is called... It's from 2019. It's eight minutes. Mm. It's an animated short film, and it is called The Great Malaise. Um, <laughs> Speaking of optimism. Right. And The Great Malaise is a short film from Catherine LePage. Mm-hmm. And it is... So, we it is a film uh, narrated by Catherine. And over the course of this short film, we see little, like, one-shot, essentially, vignettes. These... And they're just expressing an idea. Like, we'll see a flower bloom. Mm -hmm. We'll see a cheetah on a treadmill. Um, And we hear her narrating about... uh, Catherine narrating about how she feels about herself. Um, I am... I am quick thinking. I am confident. Um, I am uh, strong. Like, all these different... All these different, uh, uh, lots of adjectives. Mm. Um, and then gradually we start to see the images. They start out by uh, uh, paralleling the, the, the what we're hearing. Mm. Um, I am like, I am, I am, I am agile. We'll see the, the cheetah on a treadmill. Mm. And then we'll say, I am confident. And we see a fish um, using a flotation device. And so it's a little, just a little like juxtaposition there. Okay. Yeah. Um, I am, I am where I need to be a porcupine covered in balloons, um, (laughs) about to pop them all, presumably. Um, I am always one step ahead. We see, um, a downpour and there's an umbrella. And we see the umbrella floating as the person holding the umbrella is one step ahead in front of the umbrella out in the rain. <laughs> um, so, and we, as it goes on, the imagery gets less and less. Uh, uh, it starts to become, it's, it becomes, it's starting to tear away at the facade of this narration. Mm. And we realize that there is a lot of self-loathing going on. And yeah, a lot of yeah. lack of confidence, and eventually the balloons start to pop on the porcupine, and it just <laughs> come everything comes crashing down. The poster for this movie is um, a diver on top of a house of cards. Guess what's going to happen? <laughs> um, and and so it is over the course of the little eight minute short film. We hear essentially Catherine LePage's character facade break mm. and the animation reflects that and it's eight minutes and it's a mind blower man <laughs> um it's great i loved it mm. it's really beautiful and it does it does a thing that you animate you animation is unique um in its ability to express ideas in this abstract fashion yeah where you know exactly what the author is intending, even though there is no like real world uh, analog, like it's just an abstract image, but you know exactly what the message it is conveying, and it's so precise and visceral. And that is, the great malaise is 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 using that to its full potential. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's the great malaise. I okay. loved it. Um, so that's what we've seen for Ovid um next week is gonna be our last week weekly um and 
that after that we'll be going monthly mm. because I'm gonna start you know taking time for myself and um, all of our uh, Dorothy Arsner podcasts will be out um, as of we're recording this um, the Wild Party um, just was released this morning our Mark and I's episode on uh, the first sound film directed by a woman uh, hey. Um, Arzner's gayest movie and Arzner's also most racist movie oh that still survives. Yeah, it, it's it was, it's was a different time. Yeah. He said through gritted teeth. No, it yeah. it it's it sucks. Mm. Um, but it also has you know the most explicit queer couple in in any of Arzner's films. So it's got a lot of the best stuff in any Arzner movie and a lot of the worst stuff mm. in any Arzner movie. So it's ultimately a mixed bag. And so I'll say if if you're going to knowing that you're going to have to deal with the low points mm. um then you're going to then maybe you'll be able to appreciate a lot of the high points of this film Dang. but anyway our, all of our arsner stuff will be out by the time that next week's episode comes out and we'll be at pretty much the end of September and i think i'm going to you know i'll be ready for my vacation essentially yeah, yeah. from from podcasting and we'll go to monthly but this is this is my thought is for our final episode of All About Ovid Weekly. Um, I was thinking because why? Because the, on the, our first episode of All About Ovid, mm-hmm. uh, the last film that we talked about was a little animated short film that I had seen called The Clockmakers, okay. which is delightful and weird. Um, and I came across the animated short section on Ovid, and there's maybe about. I don't know, 30 of them? Mm-hmm. This is my thought. Whitney, let's just watch all 30 of them <laughs> for next week. That sounds fine. It'll probably take under two hours See, um, uh, to watch all of I'm, them. I'm on, uh, like, I'm on Ovid right now. I, I have uh, uh, Ovid open in front of me at all times. So um, uh, right. let me see what we got here. It's just like all animated shorts. If you just look up animated shorts um, right. in the search bar and go to collections, you'll get two things. The animated shorts collection, and also for some reason La Commune. Um, <laughs> There's no animation in La Commune. <laughs> I have no idea why that comes up when you search for it, but it does anyway. But if you go to the animated shorts, there's six, nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen, twenty-one, uh, twenty-four, twenty-seven, thirty, thirty-three, thirty-five animated short films, all ranging. There looks like that they're all under twenty minutes, okay. if not under fifteen minutes. So, um, Ooh, there's, oh, yeah, why don't we just knock these yeah, out there's one in, and make a big old, big yeah, old deal out of it? There's one in here called uh, "I Don't Feel Anything Anymore." Uh, oh, that sounds great! Yeah, they're, they're, um, this, some of these look really amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, absolutely. So okay. That's what I'm thinking. I'll, I'll watch all of these animated shorts on Ovid. Uh, yeah. It's, right, and then next week we're. Because because here's the thing is Ovid is host to a lot of great super long movies. Mm-hmm. We talked about two of them today, Happy Hour and Hotel Terminus. Ovid is also home to a lot of shorts, and we've talked about shorts before. We talked about the best of fests, yeah. um, dance short films, um, and yeah, let's talk about some shorts. Okay. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Hooray for shorts! Yeah, you're you're um, just trying to keep me away from those other five hour monsters that are on there. Well, I mean, here's about ch- Chinese just, yeah, mining we've, we've workers. We've spent a lot of episodes of this podcast talking about really long movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's 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 give the shorts there too. <laughs> That's fair. Um, 
Don't, yeah, don't so, leave me to my own devices. Right. I'll choose the the longest. Anyway, uh, yeah. thank you for thank you for tuning in. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Um, anyway, Whitney, where where can people? Um, uh, I and one Mr. William Bibiani uh, are co-runners of the uh, our own very own podcast network. It's called the Critically Acclaimed Network. And uh, over there, we have all kinds of podcasts that you can, uh, some you can listen to for free, some are on a Patreon, you get all kinds of deep cuts. We have review new films, we review canceled TV series, uh, we talk about Star Trek, we talk about Batman, we talk about Academy Award winning films, we talk about older films that we find on streaming services. We even did an episode about Ovid. Uh, go over there, you can listen to us. And uh, we, we have, we never stop talking. We pretty much have a podcast every day. So go ahead and listen. It's it's pretty wild, um, yeah. And and on your most episode of We've Got Mail, I kind of sent in a little, essentially, kind of like a not a eulogy, but a just a, a here the last episode of several Aaron Sorkin TV shows um, is called uh, What Kind of has a, they have the same title what kind of a day has it been <laughs> and i feel like it's kind of my what kind of a day has it what kind of a year has it been for me mm. and and i i really appreciated what you guys had to say and so if if to the listeners of this podcast if you're interested in just kind of where i'm at now with with movies and with podcast um then you can go over and listen to their most episode of Re- we've got mail um and yeah just Thank you all for joining joining us on this journey because it's been a loved one, mm-hmm. lovely one, and you know the Ovid podcast isn't ending, so it's just going to become less frequent. So, all right, um, anything to say? Um, no, I I think we've covered it all. You just say uh, thank you for listening, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see yeah, you next yeah. week, and after that, we'll see you once a month to continue to delve into the glories of uh, films that are available on Ovid. Yeah, yeah, so. Thanks, thanks for listening, all, because we know that there's a pull these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and the mainstream stuff. Thanks for spending time with us today here on The Margins. 